Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> so I'm uh, just going to piggyback on what uh, Ryan just said. Uh, it's a really great restaurant. If you've never been to a Next Step before, Myron, you might want to throw up that text number again. If you've never been to a Next Step before, uh, if you could actually take your phone. is We're encouraging you actually to take your phone out in church. You know, can you believe it? You can check your email. We'll not know the difference. We think that you're doing something spiritual by texting us. You could text us, and, uh, and that, w- that would be great. We'd love to uh, meet you for the first time at uh, Next Step. Also, we have a lot of people who uh, often talk about the fact that they travel on a regular basis and don't get to be a part of different volunteer opportunities that we have. And this, you know, if you're doing something that's like a one-shot thing. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because we have a one-shot opportunity coming up. Right. If you're busy and you travel next Sunday, like right in between the two services, and then actually after this service too, but you can pick whatever shift you want. It's like a 30-minute shift. If you want to help us do something really, really cool that happens right here, and will take maybe 30 or 40 minutes of your time, just take out your bulletin and the Connect card there and just write one shot on it, one shot, and some legible way to get a hold of you. All right? Legible way to get a hold of you. We would love that, and uh, you'd have an opportunity to do something that's really important. Uh, It's not complex. It's going to be very simple, but it's really, really important. All right, well, it's great to see you today. We began last week with Thriving Under Pressure. We're looking at this story. Actually, we talk about Joseph a lot, but really, as you begin Genesis 37, which we did last week, it's really about his father's whole family, which is Jacob. Jacob's whole family, what happened in this whole family. And so now we're up to Genesis chapter 38, and all of a sudden, we're going to focus on this chapter. And if you've ever read the story before, it goes from Genesis 37 all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. Many, many chapters. Joseph actually takes up more space. There's more spoken words by Joseph than any other person. If you get to Genesis 38, as the story is just getting going, and you're in suspense, like... What's going on? Why does it stop? And why don't we hear anything about Joseph all of a sudden? All, it's all about Judah. Well, Genesis 38, here's the thing. I didn't know this for years. Check this out in case you've ever heard about this story before. Genesis 38 covers a 20-year span of time. That 20-year span of time is the amount of time that Joseph had spent down in Egypt before his brothers reunited with him. So actually what's going on is we're getting ready to pick back up with Joseph next week. But this is the story of Judah, what's happening in his life while all this stuff is happening in Joseph's life. It's kind of cool. So you get these parallel streams. So we're going to find out this morning what happens through Judah's life through a 20-year period of time. We began last week by talking about this, that God wants to shape our character. I hope this says community. I can't see. Does it? Yes, it does. Shape our community and our competency. We talked about last week that all six dreams that are in this whole thing are about what people do for a living, that God is very interested in what you do for a living and wants you to achieve excellence and wants you to have a purpose and wants you to have meaning. And so he shapes these areas. But God can't shape any of those areas until you come back here to home plate and connect with God. Like, if I all of a sudden came out in a baseball game and started running the bases without hitting the ball, what, 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 would there be a problem? You can say, yes, it's okay. Yes, there'd be a problem. It's, it's wrong. It's breaking all the rules. So the only way that God's going to shape, shape, and shape is if I connect here first. And I am never going to connect out of delight. I will only connect out of duty, out of responsibility, unless I go deeper. And the deeper thing is, is I got to learn to depend upon God. Now, the problem with that is, is I'm addicted to independence. We talked about that last week. We have an addiction to independence. 
We all have the seed of independence in us, right? We want to be independent. And when we became teenagers, the hormones kicked in and they just watered that seed of independence and all of a sudden, boom. And you know what? I said this last week from this parenting book I read recently. What a teenager wants more than anything else. It's like a drug. They want to be independent. And that's in all of us. So we want that. So how do we do we have to We have to come back here and be dependent. I'll get back to that more in a minute. All right, you might have seen the warning signs when you came in because I'm going to read all of Genesis chapter 38 to you. And if you're sitting next to a person that you're concerned about because they have young ears, and like, oh my gosh, I didn't know the Bible said that. The Bible says that, and uh, it talks about this stuff that we're going to do. And so I'm just warning you now. Now's the time to... Stand them up and walk them out if you're concerned about that, okay? All right. Um, I put a quote at the beginning of this, uh, of this from a professor that's actually very important. We have a bad habit. Many of us have a bad habit. I don't want to say all of us have a bad habit, but many of us have a bad habit, and we misinterpret the Bible. We take the power out of the Bible. We have problems understanding the Bible when we look at the Bible like this professor talks about here. Ready? Let's read the quote. The grittiness of this passage helpfully puts to death some of our worst tendencies in reading the Bible. We often approach the Bible as if it were a series of heartwarming stories designed to inspire us to good, clean, moral living. All right, I need to read that to you because some of you have never read Genesis 38, and you're about ready to say, what? Are you serious? So you tell me where the good, clean, moral living is in Genesis 38. Some Bible scholars have called this chapter the worst chapter in all the Bible. One Bible scholar said it is the most worthless chapter in all the Bible. Another person said, I have no idea why God included Genesis 38 into the Bible. It has no value. What I'm going to suggest to you today is actually it's one of the most valuable chapters in all the Bible. It's life-changing. It's transformative. Genesis chapter 38. We gave you out a keychain. Did, Did anybody... Did anybody put the keychain on their keys last week? Anybody? Okay, a couple of hands, but good for you. And what we talked about last week, because in Genesis 37, you can't find God anywhere. God has been everywhere in Genesis, and all of a sudden you hit chapter 37, he's nowhere. What happened to God? He's like Waldo. He's disappeared. And we talked about the fact that we need to pour our lives out before God, that we need to pray it like it is, that God is interested in every area of our life. And so we said, remember this for 10 weeks to pray. I have one other thing I want to remind you about this week as you pray, as you pour your heart out before God, as you pray it like it is. I want to remind you of this. The key is always you. The key is We're going to cover some tough stuff in just a moment. And I want you to know this. The key is always you. And the tendency is always to say, you know what, I've had a hard life. And uh, God has a dream for me. You can't get past that in this story. Dreams are all over the place. God has a plan. God has a dream. God has a dream for you. God has a plan for you. And the thought is always to say, you know, if it wasn't for this person or wasn't for what somebody did in my life, if it wasn't for the situation I'm in right now, if it wasn't for something, then that plan, that dream could come to pass. And what we're going to figure out in this story is the key is always us. The key is always me. I'm going to encourage you to do something that I'm going to do through this. I'm not going to preach to you or at you or anything like that. I'm going to preach a message to myself. And we're all along for the ride together. And I encourage you not to think about anybody else today as we go through this very hard story, but to think about you. And I will think about me. And we'll be in, we'll be in one big happy family together, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, this chapter, 
There is a grittiness to this chapter. There is um, a lot of deep pain and hurt. There's a cycle that we see repeated, and yet there's hope. Open our eyes and help us to see what we need to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I read, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, I want to remind you of a verse that we talked about last week. It is incredibly important, and we'll keep coming back to this verse, and that's Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2 says, do not, be, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a pattern to this world. And what is the pattern? The pattern is I start off as a child dependent upon my parents, don't I? I'm not going to survive unless there is some adult around me who's going to feed me, clothe me, help me, right? I got to have that. A six-month-old, a two-year-old baby, we're not, not going to survive. So you go from dependence, and you come over here to independence. So your 30-year-old child, you're hoping that they are, you know, living on their own and clothing themselves and working and doing all that. That's cool, right? We don't celebrate. We don't celebrate somebody who is still dependent upon their parents. And what's being said here is, is it's the reverse in the spiritual world, that we start out in life, spiritually speaking, completely independent before God, and we need to come over here to dependence. But how you get there is amazing. How you get there is counterintuitive. You would think you work your way there, but you can't work your way there. There is something, a revelation. There is an opening of our eyes that has to happen. And unless that happens, we will never come to this place, ever, ever, ever. Me praying and connecting with God will always be a duty and always be a responsibility. Can anybody say amen? Always. People I talk to, I should pray more. Well, because I just, I got to pray. Oh, I don't, but whatever. You know, I got to do this for God. I got to go obey God. I got to, got to, got And all of a sudden, when you get this dependence upon God, when our eyes are open to this, when God moves and acts in our life, as you will see this happen in Judah's life, all of a sudden it goes from duty to delight. All of a sudden it goes from responsibility to privilege. It's everything. This is everything, what happens in Judah's life here. All right. I need to tell you what the word transform means from Romans Chapter 12, be transformed. It's a very important word. It's the Greek word morpho. If you want to write thin, I think we have one, one fill in the blank today. We are not taxing your writing skills today. One fill in the blank. Morpho. It's very important. Here's what it means. Check this out. It's very interesting. The inward and real formation of the essential nature of a person. It is the real you. People say in this world, people can't change. People can't change. And what we find here in this story is a very callous person named Judah who's been hurt, and hurt people hurt people. Very callous. He deserves to be bitter. He deserves to be hurt. He's never changing. And all of a sudden, we find this bitter guy who's hurt and could care less about anybody else, including his own family. We catch back up with him later on in the story, and oh my gosh, he's a changed person. How did that happen? How did he transform? Because the real Judah stood up. I hear people say this. I know there's more to life. And you know what I hear people saying in that? I know there's more to life. You know what I hear them saying deep down inside? I know there's more to me. There's more to me. There's a real me inside there waiting to come out. And that is what this word means. Be transformed. There's a real you. There's a real John. And it's covered up by a lot of stuff. And here's the way for the real John to emerge. Here's the way for the real you to emerge. God wants to get all that other stuff away. And in this story, we see how the real Judah emerges here. It's amazing. So here we go. Let's read it. Genesis 38. It's in your Bible or it's on the screen behind me. It is definitely not on your bulletin this week because there's too many verses. 
It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. At that time, very important, what happens? What had just happened? Judah and his brothers had attacked Joseph, skinned him like an animal. That's the word. It's violent, a violent attack upon Joseph. Throw him down in this pit. And then Judah comes up with the idea, let's not make this boy miserable for a moment. Let's give him a lifetime of misery. Let's sell him as a slave so that he can just be abused and mistreated for his entire life. Man, the hatred inside this guy is poisonous. His bitterness is powerful. Make this guy suffer. At that time, he chose to leave something you would not do. He leaves his family. He leaves his father. He leaves his brother. He breaks away. Later on in the story, you'll see that he reconciles. You have to say, how did that happen? It's because of what takes place in this chapter right here. So he leaves. He breaks away. He's gone. Goes on and says this. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. These words in the book of Genesis, Hebrew words, are always of an illicit nature. Uh, what we will find out in Judah's life is he was very much driven by lust. So we don't, we're not even given her name. It was a marriage of lust. We don't even know her name. He took her, went into her. She conceived, bore a son, and he called his name Ur. He called, who called her name? Who called the kid's name, right? Important. Who did it? You can say it. It's he. He did it. Ur. Ur is evil spelled backwards. Judah names his firstborn son evil spelled backwards. All right? And she bore a son, he called his name her. She conceived again and bore a son. And who, who named him? Who named the second child? She did. She did. Where are you? I don't know. Judah's not around. She, she calls the name Onan. Verse 5, yet again, she bore a son. And who called the name? She called the name. She called the name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Okay, not only is he not naming his child, not only is he ignoring his children, but he's not even around. He's in another city called Chezib. You know what the name of the city is? What it means? City of lies. He is down in the city of lies. Just like Joseph, God has a dream for Joseph to come to pass. God has a dream for Judah to come to pass. But God has to get Judah out of the way. We think it's something else that's standing in our way for God to bring about whatever God wants to bring our life. But what we're going to find out through the stories of Joseph and Judah and all of his brothers, it's really us that is standing in the way. He leaves his father. He leaves his brother. He breaks away. They would not do that. He can't take his father's favoritism anymore. His father mourned like crazy for Joseph, which is understandable, but he mourned excessively. You know why? Because he cared less about the other sons. His heart cannot be con consoled from his grief. He doesn't care about his ten other sons. All he cares about is Joseph because he favors Joseph. The wounds of a father run very deep. The history, the cycle of favoritism, especially from a father, run very deep in this, and that cycle never stops until somebody steps in and breaks this cycle. So who is Judah? Judah, everybody, is the fourth son of an unloved, unwanted woman by the name of Leah. How did, he, how, how did he get to be her son? Well, let me tell you. So his father, Jacob, had his eye on this beautiful woman by the name of Rachel. He says, I love her so much. I will work for her. Her father's name was Laban. Laban says, okay, you can marry her. I'm going to make you work seven years. So he works seven years for her. On the night of their wedding, Laban, the father, gets him quite drunk. And then he puts a veil, notice, remember, a veil 
on to Leah, and he is so happy, so thrilled, the father, to get rid of this unwanted daughter named Leah, he discards her as trash and says, you go, send you into the tent to be married to this guy. He thinks he's sleeping with your sister, but it's okay. How would that make you feel? He is the fourth son of an unwanted, unloved woman by the name of Leah. He's duped into a relationship by a woman wearing a veil. That's Judah's father, Jacob. Now, Leah tries to earn Jacob's love through sex and childbearing. She has her first son. His name is Reuben. And she says this, he'll love me now. He did not. Second son, Simeon, now he'll love me. No. Third son, Levi, at last he will love me. No. Fourth son, Judah. On Judah, she gave up. There's nothing about love. There's nothing about Jacob finding love. There's nothing about that. She's given up. She'll never be loved. She's unwanted. She's unloved, discarded by her father, unloved by her husband. All of this is carried down into Judah, who is not loved by his father, who is ignored by Jacob, his father. There was a time, everybody, I want you to think about this for a moment. Jacob finally leaves Laban, his father-in-law, and he's going back. He's going back to his home where he's from. He had to leave his home 20-some years earlier. He had to leave because he did a very dishonest act, and his brother Esau, who is like, you know, Mr. Macho guy, is so mad at him by what he did to him. He says, I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob flees. And now he's coming back after being gone all these years. And he's got all of his families and his son. And he's got Leah and all of her sons that she had, right? And they're all going back to meet him. So he sends a recon guy out. And the recon guy says, hey, Jacob, okay, I got news for you. Esau's on his way. He's like riding full blast to see us. He's got 400 soldiers with him. So Jacob immediately thinks, oh my gosh, I'm dead. So you know what he does? You know what he does? to his wife that he loves so much, Leah. He takes Leah and all of her sons and he puts them way out front like a human shield and basically making a very clear statement, go ahead and kill them. The only people matter to me is the wife I do love back here whose name is Rachel and her son Joseph. And Judah is like, hey, you know, mom, why are they way back there? And what is mom supposed to say? Well, he could care less about you. Your father could care less about you. The wounds of a father run very, very deep. This cycle carries over and over. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. He's unloved, unwanted. Hurt people hurt people. And history in the book of Genesis just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. She's a Canaanite. These are people that you wouldn't have anything to do with. Very immoral people. It's Canaanite. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Oh, wow. I mean, you don't hear that often. Don't know what the boy did, but it wasn't good. God put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Oh, my gosh. Come on, are you serious? What's up with that? This is what they would do back then. Now, there's some, there's some spiritual reasons and there's some very natural reasons. Spiritually speaking, God says, be fruitful and multiply. God put a desire in us to have children. I mean, 
Why in the world else would we have children? We bring children into a world where they could be you know, hurt in all kinds of ways, but people don't seem to stop having children. Now, there might be two reasons why that happens, but nonetheless. Uh, also, I want to say this. There's no Social Security for them. You might say, well, there might not be Social Security for me. But yeah, there was no chance that they had Social Security, right? Your children were your Social Security, okay? Your children were your 401K program. They, this was it. If you didn't have a kid to take care of you, you're just dead. Nobody's taking care of you. There's no assisted living center to take them to. This is it, right? And so they had this practice. This is go in. Now look what, look what he does. But Onan knew, listen to this, knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Wow. So why is he doing this? Why is Onan doing this? So here's the thing. So Ur, evil spelled backwards, God kills him, right? And now Onan is number one son, right? Ur's dead. Now he's number one son. So what does that mean in that day? That means he gets all the privilege of number one son. That means he gets all the money, all the position, all the power. If he has a child through Tamar, he shot himself in the foot. Everything's going to that son. So he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather be incredibly selfish. I don't care less about her. Throughout this whole story, Tamar is a passive person up until a point, and then she finally acts. She's a passive person being abused, being lied to, being hurt. All of these terrible things is happening to Tamar. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. The Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow where? In whose house are you to remain a widow? Father's house. Oh, that's strange, everybody. Okay, because Judah should have taken her into his home and protected her. That was the normal way for things to happen. He is sending her back like a defective piece of property. Send her back. She's unwanted. She's unloved. Just like who? Just like who? Anybody tracking with me? Just like who? Leah. Just like Judah's mom. Now he's passing the favor down for all the wounds in his heart of what his father did to his mother. What is he doing? Boom, same thing, cycles repeating. Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he's never going to give it to her. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Think about this for a second, everybody. Think of this. Judah is the guy that can concoct the scheme to sell Joseph into slavery so he would not live a moment of misery through just killing him outright, which would have been a mercy killing. No, 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 no. Let's sell the guy into slavery so he has a lifetime of misery. This guy is so callous and so hard and so uncaring. And when we catch up with him later and find out all of a sudden he's caring, we have to say, what? Who is this? Is this the same guy that we've been talking about? He didn't care about anybody else. He can cock to that scene. He left his family, broke off the relationship with his family, off the relationship with his brothers. His father could care less about his dad and the grief his dad was. He ran with the wrong crowd. He married based on lust. He ignores his children. And yet he's completely positive that the deaths of his sons are Tamar's fault because she's a curse. Does anybody want to say, whoa, does anybody want to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, buddy. Anybody in the room want to say that's wrong? Is there a woman in the room that wants to say, hey, hey, that's wrong. It's okay. He is so, exactly. What is up with that? So he blame, he shifts the blame. And start, he is so convinced. It's not his bad parenting. It's not the fact that he wasn't around. It's not the fact that he called his first son evil spelled backwards. It wasn't the fact that he was in the city of lies when the son was... It's not the fact that he's a terrible father. It's the fact that Tamar's cursed. And the whole world knows Tamar's cursed. This is the way he treats her. Hurt people hurt people. 
Hurt people hurt people until somebody steps up and breaks the cycle. The cycle must be broken. Verse number 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, never get her name, she was daughter died when Judah was comforted. He went up to Timnah to the sheep shears. Oh, man, sheep shearing time. You know what happens to sheep shearing time, right? Big time party, okay? Big time party. I thought you guys sheared some sheep at least some point in your life. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, check this out, when Tamar was told your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with what? Oh. Mm. Wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Uh, does history repeat itself? So his father Jacob was duped by a woman into a relationship he never wanted to be with, and she was, how did he not know? She was covered with what? Uh-huh. On the road to Enaim. You know what that name means? On the road to the city of Enaim. It means the opening of the eyes. Get ready. God's getting ready to open up some eyes here. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. All right, the Hebrew is much more graphic. We in English, we're going to make things nice for you, okay? Much more graphic in the Hebrew. Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come to me? He answered, I will send you, what? A young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet ring and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. I want your credit card, your social security card, <laughs> and your driver's license. That's what, that, that's what it is back then. That's what I want from you. So he gave them to her. Now, his, her plan is working so easy. How is it that her plan works so easy? Because everybody knows this guy is driven by lust. Okay? So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose, went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of a widow. History repeats itself over and over and over again. Jacob, everybody check this out. Ready? One, two, three. Number one, Jacob deceives his father Isaac through a piece of clothing and a goat. Two, Jacob's sons deceive their father Jacob. How? Through a piece of clothing and a goat. Three, Judah here is deceived through a piece of clothing and a goat. Uh, Jacob never wanted to be in the relationship with Leah. He was duped by a veiled woman. Judah can't stand his father, hates his father. And what happens to him? He is duped by a woman that he never wanted to be in a relationship behind a veil. Look, uh, I would bore you to death if we went through the cycles that keep repeating over and over again. They are enormous. I'm only giving you a couple. It keeps going. The reason I bring that up have you ever considered your family in your own life? 
Have you ever considered the fact that maybe cycles keep repeating over and over again in your life or in your family's life? Have you ever thought about the wounds of a father that just kind of keep reappearing over and over again or the wounds of a mother? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about somebody needs to stand up and break the cycle? You ever thought about how does the cycle get broken? How do the wounds get healed? That's what this story is about because in this story, we see the deep wounds. How can you blame Judah? All the stuff that he went through and yet he does all this callous stuff. Somebody has to break the cycle of everything that's going on here in open eyes. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? Can I stop right there and take a quick time out? This is a Hebrew euphemism, cult prostitute. You know what it means? Holy woman. Where's that holy woman? The writer inserted holy woman. Why in the world would they do that? Well, let's get back to that in a second. Where is the cult prostitute? Where's that holy woman who was by the road to the opening of your eyes? And they said, no holy woman has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Holy woman is a foreshadow of what's to come in her future. It's a foreshadowing that all the injustice is going to be justified. God's going to right all the wrongs that have been done to Tamar, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, ready for this? About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, stoning was the appropriate way to kill somebody back then for such an act. Stone them. It might sound terrible, but it's a little quicker than burning. Burning is very excessive, but he is so excited to be rid of cursed Tamar. He is so excited about that. Now, finally, his son can get married. He's like, man, just burn her. Just burn her. Now, I need you to know this before we move on. Tamar is pregnant. And under the law, both Tamar and her partner who got her pregnant should suffer the same fate. In condemning Tamar, he is condemning who? Oh, yeah. Now, now it's getting good. He's just condemned himself. Bring her out, burn her. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. I underline that for you because you know what all the brothers did after they sold uh, Joseph into slavery and they brought his coat back all ripped up with the goat's blood on. You know what they said? They went to their dad and they didn't say, hey, dad, hey, 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 uh, Jacob, um, these are Joseph. They didn't do that. You know what they said? They put him before him and says, could you identify these? Same words. Could you? History just keeps repeating itself. Until somebody stands up and says, you know what? It's gone on far enough. We have to break this cycle. Please identify whose these are. The signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, and here it is. Here's the big moment. She is more righteous than I. This is what starts the breaking of the cycle. He owns his sin. He stops trying to shift blame. He stops trying to ignore it. God has worked in his life through circumstances, but make no mistake about it, God has opened his eyes on that road to Enaim. God opened his eyes. And God says, you 
are unrighteous. The problem in your life isn't your father, your mother, your brothers. The key to everything is you, and you need to own, confess, and embrace your sin. When God reveals to us, and this only happens by God, if I try to reveal my sin to myself, everything becomes a duty back here to connect with God. If I try through guilt or persuasion or whatever, say, hey, you all need Jesus in your life. You're all a bunch of sinners. You know what that does to you? All that does to you is out of guilt and conformation makes you religious. But if God, if Almighty God was to open our eyes and we were to say, ah, yes, yes, like Judah, I embrace my sin. You know what happens then? God begins to work in our life and we find ourselves dependent upon God. God and connecting with God becomes a delight, never a duty. It's an act of God, and God works. God works in Judah's life in a powerful way here. He opens his eyes, and the real Judah begins to emerge here, right here in this process. God wants to open eyes. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, famous verse, Jesus is getting ready to begin his ministry. Okay, why are you here, Jesus? What are you doing? Why are you here? And Jesus says, let me tell you what I'm here for. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Great. Like it. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Okay, good. And recovery of sight for the blind. I guess Jesus just has a special soft spot in his heart for people who are physically blind. Well, I mean, we're just left with nothing else. I mean, it's like the Kiwanis or the Lions Club that everybody has their pet project. And his pet project is blindness. He healed more people of blindness than any other physical infirmity. He's just really, really, really into blindness. Or he's into something much, much deeper and he's trying to get our attention. That we need to have our eyes opened by God. Now, are you excited about saying, Almighty God, go ahead and open my eyes and show me my sin and my need of you? Does that excite you? I'm very excited about praying for you. <laughs> Please, open their eyes. Show them their sin. Ha <laughs> Right? But I'm not so excited about praying that for me. But you know what? The real you emerges. When your eyes are open, the real me emerges when my eyes are open and God opens my eyes. I'm not trying to force my eyes open. I'm not trying to force your eyes open. When all God, Almighty God moves and acts and opens eyes, and then all of a sudden we say, okay, I embrace it. I don't turn. He had a decision to make when she came out with the credit card and the driver's license and the Social Security card. He, had a credit, he said, uh, I don't know whose they are. He's a callous, right? But he's just killer anyway, whatever. She stole them. He didn't try to concoct a story. He didn't try to shift blame. All of a sudden, he just said, ah, I embrace it. I own it. And when he does that, everything changes. Everything changes. And this guy is completely transformed. John chapter 16, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world about the guilt of sin and the need of a Savior. We don't know that we need a Savior, that we need to be dependent upon God unless the Holy Spirit acts in our life. And when the Holy Spirit acts, we have that decision to make. Should I confess my sin before God? Should I open my hands before God and say, yes, like Judah, that is me. Finally, that is me. Because what if I do that? I mean, is God going to humiliate me? Is God a con- he's going to condemn me or bad things going to happen or is God going to lift me up? Psalm 62, 7 says, when we depend upon God, he honors us and he saves us. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't humiliate us. This is what God does in our lives. Let's keep reading. Verse number 27. 
When the time came for her labor, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. I just want you to catch a visual on this thing, man. And when she put, <laughs> one put out a hand, whoop. And the midwife took <laughs> and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first, but he drew his hand back. A lot of stuff going on here. His brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. You know what that means? His name is Perez. She says, you have broken through. You've broken through. You've made a breakthrough. You've broke the cycle. You broke the cycle. When Judah finally embraces his sin, God opens his eyes on that road and he embraces his own sin. He doesn't try to shift it to somebody else. God says the cycle has now been broken and Judah becomes the person that he is supposed to be. He is transformed. The cycle won't be broken until your eyes are opened. The cycle will not be broken in my life until my eyes are opened. Judah had deep wounds from his father, deep wounds from his mother, deep wounds from life. The key is always, always, always in me. It takes a breakthrough. All right, I'm going to ask the music team, those that are coming up, to come out. They're going to play a song for us. I'm going to conclude by just telling you just a, a, a quick story. This is very sad about Tamar. I would imagine some of you, if you're like me, you're feeling, you're feeling bad for Tamar. I do. Uh, she's hurt. She's lied to. She's abused. Um, all kinds of terrible stuff happens to Tamar. She's powerless for most of this. And that just makes, that kind of just makes me feel, you know, very sick for her. She uh, is seen as a curse. She's seen as a curse. Like there's a dark cloud hanging. I mean, her, her, her father-in-law has done all these wrong things to her. And yet he's like, oh, she's cursed. I'm imagining there's some of us in this room here today, both men and women, that we feel like we have a dark cloud hanging over our head that we're cursed. I want you to tell you what happens in her life because God writes some wrongs. God brings about some justice. And even though her name is viewed as a curse, God invokes it later on in life as a blessing. Two prominent places Tamar comes back up. First place, Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. This is what it says. Through the offering. This is a couple hundred years after Tamar's dead. Through the offering the Lord gives you by this young man, being spoken over by Ruth, may your family, think about this, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar born to Judah. Oh my gosh, are you serious? I want your family to be like Tamar's family because it's such a blessing. Oh my gosh. Yes, I want you to be just like Tamar. You know, put a veil, get some hooker heels on, man. Have sex with your father-in-law. Raise up this offspring through incest. Yes! Oh, doesn't make you feel, oh, that's so heartwarming. Thank you, Jesus, that you give us the Bible that is filled with these heartwarming messages about these wonderful role models who dress up like hookers and have sex with their father-in-law. That is awesome. You know what's cool about this? Is her name here, everybody is used as a blessing, even though she was a curse. And what I want to tell you, some of us feel like a curse this morning. And God says, you know what? I want, I want to flip that around for you. I want to take all the wounds from your family, all the crap that you suffered, and I want to turn it around, and I want to make your life a blessing. All these weapons that you feel are formed against you, I want to flip them around. I want to do something mighty and powerful in your life. But the answer all starts in you, not in somebody else. You know, it starts with you having your eyes open and embracing that stuff. It's not looking to somebody else. It's not looking to Jacob or Leah, anybody else. It involves me having my eyes open. So you know what? I own it. And God says, okay, good, 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 good. Now the transformation can begin. Her name is invoked in a second place. That was the first. Here's the second. Jesus Christ. 
Of course, Jesus Christ is just wonderful, pure. He's holy. He's beautiful. Sweet baby Jesus, right? Sweet baby Jesus all nestled in that nice little cradle, isn't he? Right? Who, who was his great, 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 great grandmother? Who was his great grandma? So Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which never in those days includes a woman's name, says this. The genealogy of the Messiah, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Prez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? Through a Canaanite. What do you think God can do in your life? I mean, have you experienced that? If God can turn that around, what can God do in our lives when we allow God to open our eyes and we confess our sins? How about Judah? Judah, you know, Joseph was the obvious choice. It should have been through his line that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, came through. But God didn't choose Joseph. God chose Judah. And we're going to talk more about that in this series further on, about God, why God chose him. But I want to tell you where it all starts, right here. And then we have to make a decision. Do I want my eyes opened? Well, look, Jesus is the ultimate hero of every story. If you're reading the Bible and you're looking, oh, there, I, I like that Tamar person. She'll be my role model from now on. Wrong. I like that Judah person. Oh, my gosh. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus. Hey, hey, go, Jesus. Awesome. No. No. Jesus is always the hero, everybody. Jesus is always the hero. You know why? Because here's what Jesus Christ does for us. Instead of being like Judah and always shifting the blame, Jesus Christ does the unthinkable. He takes all of our blame. He takes it all. I'll tell you a story in conclusion. We're going to stand up and sing. So uh, I grew up in a neighborhood right down the street from here. I was about 10 years old. We moved to this neighborhood. And uh, the reason you need to know that is because I didn't know all the escape routes in the neighborhood yet because I was new to the neighborhood. And one day, we're all throwing berries at cars. One of our neighbors had a bunch of berries out in front of their house. And it was awesome because a nice little narrow street that caused cars, cars to bottleneck. And we could take all these berries and just pelt cars and just fantastic. There's nothing better for a 10-year-old boy to do on a lazy summer day than to nail cars with berries, right? So there's a whole bunch of us were lined up behind there and we you know we're calling uh, we have this code system right for these cars so like when it when a white car is coming down the street that's big stuff you understand what i'm saying because then you can really see your work you can't really see it on a black car or something you, you see it right so and when it's a really huge white car oh man it was all points bullet and everybody get ready i mean whatever you have in your arsenal unload it massive old white car comes down the street and man we oh my gosh it was like five trees worth of berries that we just unload on this car and we just turned the color of the car it was fantastic well then the worst thing happened yeah big huge squeal the brakes he blocks everything no cars get by this guy gets out and he is seething like spit just coming out he's just screaming everybody goes running everybody knows the escape route who doesn't know the escape route me, I don't know the escape route. I have no idea what the escape route is. And so I run down a, a driveway and oh my gosh, there's this huge German shepherd, massive German shepherd on this very long chain and he's going to eat me. So I stop and I hide behind a tree. I hide behind a tree that's about that big. I just... Oh, oh my gosh, if I've never prayed before, God, please help me, right? So I'm hiding behind this tree. Well, he sees me, of course, and he is just ah, seething. He's running at me, and he's saying words that I can't tell you right now, and it's just pouring out of him. He gets five feet from me. He's got his hand out like this and almost grabs me, and then Liz J. Liz J uh, was about 18 years old. She's about six foot two. And all of a sudden, she comes up, get out of here, throws him back. 
oh my gosh. As mad as he was, his power, she just like matched it and just went above. You know how you, it's awesome. Beautiful. It's incredible. Get back. And he freaked him out so much. This guy just stood, oh, whoa. Back up. And she turned to me and she kind of knelt down in front of me and she looked me right in the eye and she said, were you throwing those berries at cars? Now I had a decision to make. The evidence was right here. I had a big decision to make. Should I show her? Because, listen, listen, everybody. If I show her, how will she react? If I show her my sin, how will she react? Will she turn me over to the devil? Because he's wanting me. Will she be mad at me? Will she be disappointed at me? Will she scold me? Will she slap me? Hey, look, this is the 70s, okay? That's what you do back then. You slap kids around, all right? not condoning I'm just telling you being honest with you will she slap me will she scream at me what will she do to me should I trust her enough to hold my sin out should you trust Jesus Christ enough right now today this morning right now decision time that if you hold your sin out before him what will he do with it I had this massive decision for a tell old 10 year old kid who's on the verge of tears and I just decided I showed her when I showed her, she did three things immediately. The first thing she did is she looked me dead in the eye. She patted me on the shoulder and she said, it's going to be okay. She turned to a bunch of kids who were peering through all these bushes, wondering what's going to happen next. And she says, go get me a bucket filled with water, soap, and a sponge. And the third thing she does is she turns around to that devil who was screaming, I told you he was guilty. That's sorry, SOB. I mean, just, he's just rolling. She turns around to him and she says, shut up. Get back in your car. Oh my gosh, she was serious. Then the bucket comes. She takes the bucket. You know what she did with the bucket? She took the bucket and she washed the car herself. Liz J is Jesus. Oh my gosh. How do you think? I was, I, was, I was excited too. All right, you have a decision here. If God opens your eyes, I can't open your eyes, but if God opens your eyes today and he reveals some stuff to you on the road to Naim and he shows you your guilt and shows you your sin, it's a decision time. You can either go like this or you can just hold it back. If you think God's going to shame you or dishonor you, the story is from this story that God is going to lift you up. That God's going to transform your life. That God's going to do a beautiful thing in you. It's going to be absolute. You are finally, finally, finally going to become the person that is inside of you that God has designed you to be. It happens no other way. It happens no other way. Confess. Trust God enough. Trust Him enough to expose it to Him. All right, let's stand and sing, okay? Christian's going to lead us in a song. All right, as that happens, look. Look, a lot of wounds, a lot of cycles in this room, a lot of scars, a lot of wounds of a father, wounds of a mother. A lot of stuff happens in this room. This story surely has stirred up some things in you. If you wanna, want the prayer team to pray with you, I'm going to be over here with the prayer team. Don't wait for the song to end. Just come over now. Let somebody stand with you and see the cycle broken in your life. Heavenly Father, I thank you for everybody here. I thank you, God, that you have a plan for every single person. And Lord, I pray that we would trust you enough that we would just hold our hands open before you. And we'd say, Father, I confess my sin. Change my life. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.